Welcome to Wellversed, where we bring biblical principles of governance to governmental leaders and you. This is the Wellversed podcast. I am so excited to have Joe and Franco with us tonight on the World Prayer Network call. Joe is a special friend. He's an attorney, a lifelong attorney. Uh, he's he's doing some other things besides just being an attorney. I'll let him tell you that uh, in a moment. But I'm going to have him talk about some extremely important recent decisions from the U.S. Supreme Court. Joe, thank you for being back on the World Prayer Network call for, I don't know how many times we've had you. But I love you like a brother, and I'm so honored to have you, man. So tell, tell us the uh, first thing. In addition to being an attorney for your entire adult life. I will. But first, I have to say... Uh, how Jim, you're a special friend. And when I get a call from you, I drop everything. Um, I, I have so high an opinion of you and I don't hold it against you that 20 years ago, the uh, city attorney of San Diego took my time at your church. <laughs> long, long forgotten. So yeah, I'm still, I'm still practicing law, but I'm, I'm, I also have the privilege now to serve as an, as a pastor of adult education at my church in Scottsdale. And they have a vision for me to be available to discuss cultural issues, cultural apologetics, things like that. So I'm still very active. Um, I have a lot of church networks and nonprofits I've worked with over the years and get to address these kinds of issues and try to be a resource to the church. Uh, now, now that he's, he's teed me up to talk about this event that occurred in my church, he, was, uh, he drove clear from uh, Scottsdale, Arizona to San Diego, California, or I was pastoring Skyline Church at the time, and he was supposed to speak to a group of pastors that particular day as a weekday. It was right at the time that Terry Schiavo, uh, I believe, was being starved to death. That famous case back then. And <clears throat> we had a, I guess, a city attorney from the city of San Diego who spoke first. And, and whatever he said, I can't remember what it was, was so off that I began challenging him, and I was the MC of the event, and we got into a verbal sparring. Now, it was pleasant, or at least it was to me. I hope it was to him. Or I challenged him up and down one side on all the stuff he had just said. And when I looked at the clock, our time was gone, and Joe had driven, I don't know what, five, six hours one way. Had I, I, I flew. That's all right. <laughs> oh, <laughs> well, he flew over at some expense. And, and there he was and didn't even get to speak. And uh, I felt so badly. Oh, he, he was absolutely so honoring and deferential. And you, you could not believe it. This man walks you, in the spirit of humility. He was you, not- you did, you did such a great job though. You were challenging him exactly as he needed to be challenged. And I think he might've been running for re-election or something. So that might, that might've been a factor in his going on. I'm not sure. Oh yes, that's Yeah, good memory. You have a good memory. Well, uh, Joe, you're, you've been a lifelong pastor, and now you're I mean, a lifelong attorney, and then you're having the joy of working at least part-time uh, in the area of being a pastor as you, and you travel and speak on legal issues. I wanted to talk to you about the Supreme Court decisions that have come down recently. We heard some very, very good news, and maybe there's some cases I missed that are bad news, but I heard a, a number of really uh, good news cases that came down. Let me just ask uh, on a broad stroke here, uh, about how many cases of approximately come before the Supreme Court? Yeah. How hard is it to get a case to the Supreme Court? Why do they wait till June? I don't know when their term actually, is it they start in September or October, whenever it is? Yeah, October. They, 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 October, is that? 
and and then they make decisions all year. Why don't they release them as they make them instead of doing a massive data dump all within a, a week or so at the at the end of their end of their term? So several general questions. Then we're going to jump in right to the specific. Yeah, just quickly, it's very difficult to get a case to the Supreme Court. Um, the great, great majority of cases, it's the Supreme Court's discretion to take or not take a case. And um, I think the numbers are something like one to two percent of the requests actually get there. I would have to look up the current numbers to be sure. The court used to take more cases. There were more decisions. There's been some criticism in academic circles that the court doesn't take enough cases. My, my kind of working recollection is you're going to get 100 to 150 decisions a year, depending on how you count, not all the long decisions you think of. Some of them are quick summary decisions and all that. But I, I think there's estimates that there's probably maybe 7,000 or more requests, you know, for the court to take a case, uh, you know, each year. And so uh, a particular case, I should say. So very few cases make it there. Uh, there's lots of issues that sometimes the court lets percolate. They think it's an important issue. They want to wait till lower courts have worked it through, maybe disagree. And pardon me, there's factors, for example, if some of the federal appeals courts have considered an issue and disagreed, that makes it more likely the Supreme Court's going to step in and say, okay, we don't want the law being this if you live in California and that if you live in Texas. So that's one of the factors on the selectivity as well. Why do they wait? It's a great question. Their structure is very planned out. They've got certain conferences. Every time they've got a long conference, their clerks write memos. They do a preliminary read. Who's interested in this? Who's interested in that? And so they stick to that schedule. The decisions take more time than you would think. And the reason is there's a lot of political intrigue that goes into these. For example, um, one, you know, there's a preliminary vote and maybe, you know, five justices say, I'm leaning this way and four say, I'm leaning that way. And the senior judge, the chief justice, if he's on the side, picks who writes a decision, the judge with the most seniority, uh, if the chief justice is not on the side of the win, uh, assigns the case. But then what happens is, somebody circulates a draft petition. That leak of the Dobbs decision overturning Roe v. Wade was a draft decision. And occasionally a draft decision goes out. And I, had, my experience with this was at the New Hampshire Supreme Court in a, on a state level. Um, another justice says, hmm, you know, if you said it this way, you might've gotten me, really. And so there's back and forth and it, things can change. So it can be a long political process. There's dissents. You decide who's going to sign on the dissent or this or that. Occasionally, it gets very confusing. The justice says, I, I agree in the outcome, but I only agree in your reasoning in part A and B, but not part C and D. So that leaves lawyers scratching their heads. So because it's so intricate, it takes more time. And the court only releases, you know, typically between two to four decisions per day because the justices read them and they have other activities. But yeah, it comes down to the wire. And, and you might be right about one thing. The most controversial ones come down in the end, and they get to beat it out of town for the summer break. So maybe that's part of it, too. Who knows? Oh, so so there are decisions that are, are being rendered during the year. They don't wait till everything at the end. Is that correct? Yeah, there's occasionally decisions in the year. It depends which term they're argued. 
the cases that get argued in the winter, the process of deciding the votes, writing, drafting, dissents, that takes enough months that they come down in June. Now, you're, you've really uh, intrigued me by your use of the word political intrigue. In other words, it's possible that a judge could change his mind in the process and be and vote differently than he did initially, which uh, causes me to ask the question, was the entire motivation of the person who leaked the Dobbs case uh, a situation hoping to put pressure on a judge to maybe change their mind? There was a lot of speculation on exactly that, that it would put pressure on someone. There's intriguing stories. And, you know, the court insiders are not supposed to tell anything. They're sworn to secrecy. But when you look many years later at Blackman's diaries, he's the author of Roe v. Wade or Justice Kennedy, you know, um, there, there's a story supposedly that following Roe v. Wade, there was another Supreme Court decision called Casey versus Planned Parenthood that actually made abortion rights even stronger. And that was a 5-4 decision authored by Justice Kennedy. There are stories on the court that he was initially on the other side and was going to vote to overturn Roe v. Wade, and then somehow got flipped and, and then became the author of the opinion from the other side so he could say it the way he wanted to. So it's difficult to know. Um, there's probably been a lot more of that that's happened in these 5-4 decisions than we suspect, but that process tends to go to the grave with the justice. But yeah, there's intriguing things, and there's certainly times that there are deals made. Um, you know, uh, when Roe v. Wade was overturned, only five justices voted to overturn Roe v. Wade. Justice Roberts voted in the result to uphold the law in question, but didn't think you needed to overturn Roe v. Wade in the process. So he voted for the outcome, but he was not one of the five who went that far. And there was speculation he was hunting for another justice to come over to his side. And if that had happened, you'd have only had four votes to overturn Roe v. Wade. You would have had a different decision. There would have been five votes saying, we uphold the state law, we uphold this a, you know, a ban on abortion at a certain point in time. We don't consider Roe v. Wade yet. So that's the kind of intrigue that happens. Well, that is quite amazing. I once uh, stood in a long line uh, after a hearing Justice, uh, Supreme Court Justice Scalia speak and uh, paid $40 for an 800-page book that I'll never read just so I could get his autograph. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I want to jump into what happened in the court the last few days. These decisions came down. And do we have reason to be encouraged? And if so, why? Yeah, now there are many cases we could talk about. I'm going to hit only, only two, one very briefly and the other in more detail that I think will be of the most interest to your uh, viewers. The first is a decision called Groff, G-R-O-F-F, post office worker who wanted to take off on the Sabbath. And um, what this case had to do with it, federal employment discrimination laws uh, say you have to give a reasonable accommodation. And the way this works, just briefly for your listeners, let's say you work somewhere and uh, it, the, your employer comes under the federal employment discrimination laws, they're large enough in size and all that. If you go to your employer and you say, I have a religious conviction 
I want to do this. For example, there have been cases where Muslims say, hey, I want to break a certain number of times a day to get my prayer rug and face Mecca and do this. As soon as an employee says to the employer, hey, give me a break here. I have a religious duty that I want that I have a religious duty that I want to uh, take care of. The, the a burden shifts to the employer, and the employer has to give that accommodation, unless it's an undue hardship. That's those are the magic words. Okay, what's an undue hardship? Ah, there is the problem. That's where armies of lawyers make all kinds of money arguing, slicing words and dicing and this and that. Nobody could agree what an undue hardship was. And over time, that test greatly favored employers, where employers said, hey, it's inconvenient for me. I've got to deal with the union. I have to pay somebody some overtime, you know, if you do that. Well, if you have a Fortune 500 company, you know, paying one or two workers a little overtime for some Sundays in terms of your overall cost is so de minimis, it's absurd to even calculate it. But employers were winning those. The courts were saying, hey, it's a burden, okay. The Supreme Court finally tightened that up. They didn't give a lot of details. It was a 9-0 decision. So there's a consensus for this. Supreme Court said, no, we're not going Did you say a 9-0 decision? 9-0 decision. So because it was a modest decision. The Supreme Court said, oh, you're asking for this, you're asking for that. Well, we're not going to give either side what they want. Here's what we're saying. We are raising the bar for employers. Um, substantial, you know, uh, undue hardship means something substantial. It's not something minimal or a minimal cost. It's got to be a real hardship. So the court was basically saying to lower courts, don't give the employers a free pass because they have this little excuse or that. It's got to be a significant cost. It's got to be something real and measurable. So that's good for Christian employees. What are the contexts that could come up with? It'll be significant in the Sabbath cases. There's fewer of those, candidly. That used to be a bigger issue years ago. How might it come up? If we ever you know, perish the thought, go back to another COVID time, and people want a religious accommodation against the vaccine or something like that, could enter into a discussion like that, could enter into somebody saying, I want, a, I want to be off at a certain time to take my child to religious instructions or for this or that. Something could happen. If there's, a, if there's a genuine religious accommodation requested, it's going to be a little harder for employers to say no now. So that's the first case. Any thoughts on that or questions? No, let me just ask. This is a this is a nitpicky question. You said it was about the Sabbath. Was this a Jewish person for Shabbat or was this a Christian? And they're referring to this, Sabbath. This was a Christian Sunday. and it was Sunday. It was Sunday. It okay. used to be that the post office didn't deliver on Sundays. The post office now to compete with Amazon and all that actually entered into contracts with Amazon where they do the Sunday deliveries. So you might see, I see it in my neighborhood on Sundays, I'll see the Amazon truck, but occasionally I'll see a post office truck pulling up on Sunday, making a delivery. So this postal worker said, hey, you know, when I started this a long time ago, that one of the reasons I did this was I had Sunday off. But could that come up in the context for, say, an observant Jew or a Seventh-day Adventist? Certainly, it could be Saturday. It could be some other group that has a different day. So, um, or it could even be this, it could even be an employee saying, I want one day a week, I don't care what it is, 
give me one day between Monday and Friday for a certain religious observance. So there's other ways it could come up. Okay, very good. So that was a, a win. And so let's go, and his, and his name was Groff, you're saying the postal worker. Yeah, Groff, G-R-O-F-F. I mean, if any of your listeners have an interest, you can go on the U.S. Supreme Court website, you know, go on the internet, put it in a search for opinions. You'll come up to that page, hit the link for the opinions. You can download the opinion and read it yourself. Generally, how long approximately are is the majority opinion and how long in general with the dissenting? Opinion? Oh, gosh, it so, so varies. Um, you know, the Graf opinion was not long. I want to say that was only like maybe about um, 20, 30 pages, something like that. Um, the um, Some of the more controversial opinions to be hundreds of pages, depending on how long the dissents are and all that. So it, it it really runs. Occasionally you'll see a decision they all agree it can be 10 pages. I've seen decisions five pages, but they can be many hundreds of pages depending how much you, you want to include. Very good. Let's go to the second bit of good news you have for us. Yeah, now this is the real interesting one. And this is a case called 303 Creative. And this comes out of the state of Colorado. Colorado has been a hotbed of these actions. It's been there for a long time. When I was with ADF, I worked on a number of the cases out of Colorado, including Jack Phillips' case, the baker. And a lot of people don't understand. The most common question I get is, well, wait a minute, the baker won against Colorado. Why didn't that end all of this? Okay, here's the reason. When the baker won against Colorado, the baker won because the Colorado uh, employees of the state of Colorado and their human rights commission, these commissioners, went on record and said very stupid things about religion. If you're going to have a, a, an opponent who's got a wrong view, you kind of hope that they're arrogant and think they can say anything they want because they create a better record for you. The commissioners went on record and they said things like, oh, Jack Phillips has religious views, it's horrible. Religion is a plague on humanity. Religion caused the Holocaust. All these wonderfully, you know, idiotic, indefensible kind of statements. And when the case went to the Supreme Court, we said to the Supreme Court, he should win on speech. He can't be compelled to speak a message he doesn't want to. Supreme Court said, we're not even going to consider the speech case. Here's why. He wins on free exercise of religion. That's basically your religious rights under the First Amendment. Because we've said a million times, I'm exaggerating, we've said many times, you cannot be overtly hostile to religion. That's what you have here. These statements are in the courtroom when Justice Kennedy asked these questions, he was glowering, you could see the anger in his face. He talked about this as religious hatred or animus and bigotry, and you know, he was really upset. So it cemented the principle, you cannot be hostile to religion. We've won many cases on that basis. So that was how the Baker won. Just a minute before you go, uh, I most people know Jack Phillips. I, I, we happened to be in the Supreme Court uh, doing a tour the day of his trial. It, one, one, it, I know his first trial. And so we got to talk with him in the hallways just even going into session. But I want to make sure everybody knows uh, what that case was. So just in one sentence, what, what sure. Baker got to do this, with religious this, liberty? This, make that this is the best summary we, we could give. Jack Phillips serves all people, but will not create all messages. 
Jack Phillips was a cake artist. If you saw the pictures of his cakes, they were magnificent creations. But he had convictions informed by his Christian faith. He would not create cakes with messages that were obscene or lewd. He didn't do Halloween cakes. He wouldn't make cakes with alcohol because he he had been an alcoholic before getting saved. So there were certain messages he would not create, but he served everybody. So when people said, oh, he wouldn't serve gays, absolutely false. He had plenty of clients who were whatever sexual orientation, gender identity. He did not want to create a wedding cake celebrating a same-sex wedding, putting, making two little sculpting two men or two women at the top, because that created a message inconsistent with his view of marriage informed by scriptures like Ephesians 5. Um, you know, bride is, the church is the bride of Christ, Matthew 19, 4 and 5, picture, biblical pictures of marriage and so on. Um, and, and this was one of the things we pointed out to the court. Look, if, if a gay couple came in and said, we want to order a cake for our son's birthday, terrific, you get it. We want to order a wedding cake for our niece who's getting married to her boyfriend, terrific. If a heterosexual couple came in and said, we want to make a cake creating same-sex marriage or gay rights, he would say, no, I, I won't create that message. I'm a cake. I won't use my artistry. That in the crux is what Jack's case is about. Joshua, repeat that one phrase that was so good. I, I, I wanted to write it down. He will serve all people, but he will not. He serves all people, but he will not create all messages. Okay. That's what's at the heart of this 303 creative case. This is a website designer, a Christian website designer. Colorado has an anti-discrimination law, a state anti-discrimination laws. Little background on this. Most of this nation's history, we did not have anti-discrimination laws. The big breakthrough was in 1964, the Federal Civil Rights Act, which now enacted on a federal basis, um, civil rights based on race, and they threw sex in. And that was to deal with the problem if you saw a movie like, like The Green Book. If you were African-American, you were traveling cross-country. You would hit places you couldn't stay in a hotel or go to a restaurant. So the question is, you can't do that any longer. That's interstate commerce, and we make that illegal. Everybody applauded that. The difficulty is that ideas have a tendency to expand to the limits of their logic. People like that so much that every state got into the game and, and every state enacted anti-discrimination laws and cities began to do it, counties began to do it. And they started multiplying the categories. Okay, we're gonna have race, what else do we want? Sex, age, disability, veteran status. Well, it wasn't long before it was sexual orientation, gender identity. And this set up an inevitable conflict between anti-discrimination laws and rights like speech and free exercise of religion. Now, churches don't apply to these. Public accommodation laws are like what it says, you accommodate the public. I have a door open for business. I'm a restaurant, I'm an, I'm an amusement park. Churches get to do what they want. Religious organizations have strong freedoms. You can hire and fire according to your beliefs, even if people don't like them. We're not talking about churches and religious organizations. We're talking about businesses. But is that true if a church rents out its building to community, all kinds of community groups? Interesting question. If you rent out your building, 
that could be an exception for the rental. It doesn't convert your whole church into a public accommodation, but a court might say, hmm, you have that building you own and you're renting it out indiscriminately. Um, that's That building has just become a public accommodation. If you have listeners or churches or dealing with this issue, they can always contact me. Um, I'll, I'll help them free. They can email me at jinfranco, J-I-N, Nancy, F-R-A-N-C-O, at highlandschurch.org. I'll answer those kinds of questions for them. There's a few narrow kind of areas that come into play, and you very perceptively asked. The times that you're not acting as a nonprofit, the rules can be different. You're so that's J in Franco, I-N-F-R-A-N-C-O at Highlands, H-I-G-H-L-A-N-D-S, church.org. Org. Org. Okay. Yeah. And I, I answer all my emails. You'll, you'll be pleasantly surprised if you reach out. So that's that's a that so public accommodation laws that apply to businesses. Now the controversy is set up. What happens when my speech rights or my free exercise of religion rights collide with your anti-discrimination law, right? Let's and, and think of how this could work. Let's say that um, I'm a religiously motivated white supremacist group, and I go to a painter who does commercial paintings, and I say, I want to commission you to do a painting of Hitler for me. Well, what happens now? What if it's a Jewish painter? I, I protected him on my religious beliefs. Does that painter have to create that? It sets up all kinds of conflicts. And this is what the Supreme Court got. It's so beautiful about, about this case. So here is a Christian website designer. The law says you have to um, take serve all these people. So she asks for an advisory opinion. You don't want to wait till you're sued because then you're in a horrible administrative process. You're subject to punishments and fines. One of the most odious, and the opinion points it out, is you have to go for this kind of indoctrination retraining. If they say you're guilty, in addition to the fines and everything else, you sit through training, you know, there's it, kind of this Maoist flavor, you, you know, figuratively, they're going to put a dunce cap on you and re-educate you. So um, she went to the state and said, okay, here's the story. I'm, I design websites. I want to do weddings, but I don't want to do a wedding celebrating a same-sex marriage because that um, violates my faith. But I serve all people. I serve anyone. There's no classes I won't serve. There's just certain messages I won't create. Am I liable to the law? And the state of Colorado said, yes, you are. You have to do that or we come after you. That was enough to trigger a lawsuit. And we filed the lawsuit and the Supreme Court said, yes, that's, that's real harm. You don't have to wait till it actually happens. You're entitled to come into court now and get that decided. And the court noted as well, because we said, and unless anybody think this is not real, look what Colorado did to Jack Phillips first in a, in a same-sex wedding cake. And then they went after him on a transgender reveal cake before we backed them into a corner and they, they went out of that case. So they're clearly hostile. They clearly want to pursue these things. Is, so Jack that's Phillips, is, he, is he now free and clear or is he in another case? 
That's an active case, so I don't want to comment on it. I will just say I like where Jack is now after this case. Uh, Colorado uh, will have some explaining to do uh, at this point. I, 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 I would just say I'm encouraged for Jack's position now. I don't want to get into the tactics of how that would happen. Is he on a second case or a third case? Third case. After the state of Colorado went after him twice and then finally stopped, there was an individual who was born biologically male who, who, who claims to have transitioned and is now a transgender female. And that individual asked Jack to do a transgender celebration cake. It was a setup. And the request came the day that Jack won in the Supreme Court. And, and this same individual, by the way, um, called, there's records of it, and on other occasions asked, for example, for a Hail Satan cake with a sex toy. So this is not a person, you know, this is an ideologically driven person. That individual is now personally suing Jack under the law, rather than the state going after him. But the state is the form in which that case is taking place. It gets a little technical legally. Um, I won't spend more time on it than that. I still think that case now has, will eventually have to be dismissed, but we'll see. Okay. So that's the Jack Phillips background. So the question that was left open is what about my speech rights? Jack Phillips case did not answer that question. Hostility against religion, you lose. We'll decide speech rights another day. Now comes 303 creative. Now the court considers speech rights. I have religious speech and views, and I don't want to be compelled to create a message. Speech works two ways, Jim. And, and you only have constitutional rights when the government is involved. There's got to be government sanctions or government action. It does not apply in purely private situations. The, the Constitution is invoked when the government is in the picture. I, I can go to your house and try to stand on your front lawn and tell you what I think, and you can tell me to get off, and I don't have a right. But if I'm in the public government-owned sidewalk down the street, very different. That's public action. Now, if the government says we don't want you here, Constitution kicks in. So that's the framework for the case. And here it gets interesting. Um, you know, Justice uh, Gorsuch, writing the majority decision, said something <laughs> fascinating that to me really reveals what's going on here. And, and I, want to, um, I want to quote him correctly on this. He, he said something like, it's difficult to read the dissent and conclude that we're looking at the same case. If you look at the dissent's opinion and you read the majority opinion, you know, separately, not knowing they were the same case, you would go, oh, these are two different cases because they're so completely opposite in the approach. And I, I would give your listeners this as a background. I think that this maybe will help understand the decision, the, the reasoning behind the decision. And then I'll say what the decision actually said. The Christian website designer wins. And speech, again, you cannot be compelled to give a message you don't want to, and you can't be silenced. Freedom of speech means I get to speak the message I want, and the government can't, cannot say to me, 
oh, and by the way, you have to speak this government-approved message. They're equally offensive. I have a right to speak and not to be compelled to say what I don't want to say. And this becomes a, not only a freedom of speech, but a freedom of silence. Yes, and this falls in the latter category, but they're both considered speech. They're both equally under the First Amendment speech protections. So that's what we're saying. I don't want to be compelled to create that message and use my artistic talents. I get involved. I tell their story. I use photographs. I do this. I do that. That's my artistic talent. And the Supreme Court has always said artists have very, very strong speech rights. So, Jim, if you were a novelist, I couldn't go to you and say, hey, I know you're a Christian, but I want you to write a novel for me like, you know, The Last Temptation of Christ and why Jesus was not who he said he was. You can say, I'm not doing that. Get away from me. You know, I, I've, I can't ask it. I can't force an artist to paint a painting she does not wish to create and so on. And those cases are very strong. So um, what, what, what I think you're really dealing with here, you know, C.S. Lewis once said something like, there were only two kinds of people in the end. Those who, who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, thy will be done. The, the, if you keep rolling back another roll in these cases and look, what I see is they're all the, the spiritual truth is behind all of these controversies. This decision breaks down into two views of the world. One view of the world is very concerned about your rights of religion. You're, you believe you're going to stand before God someday. Let me not interfere with how you do that. The founders of this nation believe that. They tucked it in the First Amendment. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Congress, don't you dare have a national religion that forces people. Don't you tell people they can't practice their faith. It was essential in understanding that freedom demanded freedom of religion because freedom of religion let you have a higher authority than the king. It was a contrast to the French Revolution where the state was the ultimate authority and religion was persecuted. They said, we don't believe in that. We believe in the, your conscience and belief in God as your highest authority. And by the way, that included the right to be an atheist. That was equally protected. They thought that was very important. And so those protections are there. And part of that is if I believe, I have to be able to speak it. So the First Amendment protects religion, speech, freedom of the press, uh, you know, redress, freedom to petition government for redress of grievances. They're all limits on government. But here you have government wanting to step in and say, you must do this. You must speak this. It violates your conscience. So on the one side, you have people who kind of get this. We do not want government overreach. We do not want the failed totalitarian regimes of the 20th century. Jim, you're a historian. You could give a dozen examples from the 20th century. The disaster of imposing totalitarian beliefs and, and not allowing religion. The other side takes a very, very different view. It elevates self and self-autonomy. If I have this view of myself and my life and how I believe and what I organize, you must affirm me and my beliefs. This is what you see in, for example, in transgenderism, where this is a problem for Christians, another subject for another day. 
where a biological male comes up to me and says, I want you to call me a woman and believe I'm a woman. I look and I say, I believe God created you a man and you cannot create yourself in your own image. I can't do that. I'll be your friend. I'll respect you. I'll have lunch with you. And Jim, you've been masterful at articulating this kind of thing. But I can't agree with you on that. Well, now you're getting laws that say, oh, if you use the wrong pronouns, you are misgendering. You've committed a crime. So again, in one, there's a concession to let people have conscience, faith in God, how they, what they believe, what they're going to say. And the other is kind of a relativistic school. Take absolute truth out of it. Bend your will to beliefs, affirm. We can make you say a message you don't want. That, to me, is the great divide behind so many of these cases. And I think that's what's behind this case. I've just said a lot. Let me pause a minute and give you a chance. Well, no, this is very interesting what you've said, because it's uh, freedom of speech is not merely I can say what I want to say, uh, but it's I don't have to say what you want to force me to say. Now, that being the case, uh, you get you, 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 you were taking us on a journey, and I want you to continue. Wouldn't it be true that if I'm in the workplace and this you just gave a story of misgendering, so-called misgendering, which is a bizarre term, nobody can transition. They can't. There's no such thing as transgender. I, I try to say to people, you know, if there was a great disaster and we were all killed and archaeologists dug us up 100 years from now, there'd be XX and XY. And uh, no matter how much mutilation was done to the body, and so so many men and so many women died. But so if a, if suppose somebody's in the workplace and they, they, they work, they're working in a restaurant and they get there some morning and, and this guy says, I, you, you, I'm not I'm not Billy anymore. I'm Sally. And you better call me Sally. And you've ever referred to me as she or her. And the guy says, I, as a Christian, I cannot say that. I will not say that. Does this case have implications for that? Is that what you're saying? Great, great question. Well, no, for this reason. Here's the essential dividing point. Is the government involved? If the government is involved in some way, the Constitution kicks in and you have those protections. But doesn't the government get involved once... That case goes to the That's court. the question. If the, the, law, government, the government's if the, always involved, the law is always at stake wherever you are. You can't. But there it. has to be government action against what you're doing. If if the government says, hey, by the way, if you work in a restaurant, you do that, we're going to punish you and make it a crime. Government action. But let's say government does not is not involved, just hypothetically, right? Let's just say I I work in the restaurant and my employer says you have to use the pronoun for this person. If I say to my employer, I don't want to do that, and my employer says, then I'm going to fire you. There's no government action in that. It's private. Then the employment laws kick in, the employment discrimination laws. And then it goes back to the first case I discussed, Groff. Should, I, should the employer have given me an accommodation on my belief on that point? So it's a different set of laws. It, the, the constitutional protections kick in if government's taking the action. If it's private, different set of rules, then it becomes religion in the workplace. Uh, I have to be given you know, a, an accommodation for my beliefs unless it's an undue burden on the employer. The first case I talked about. That's well, the big if, division. If a person is, let's say, let's go back to the restaurant. And uh, we're working there, and, and Billy claims he's Sally and has to be called Sally and she and all this. And uh, I say, 
I won't based upon religious convictions. It has little to do with you. It has everything to do with me and my rights uh, constitutionally. I, I cannot be forced. It is, is not at that point. Doesn't the actual aspect of the freedom of religion uh, protect me from having to call a he or she? If it's purely a private action, no. Freedom of religion is freedom from government coercion, government okay. action. That's the key. The the First Amendment, the Constitution applies to but, but, government but I, I, I understand action. That, I thought the let's go let's go from three hundred three creative case. Back to Groff. In that case, isn't the Groff case? Does it does it not become applicable here in this case? Possibly, possibly. That's if the if the owner of the restaurant says, "Hey, if you're not going to refer to your co-server by the correct pronouns, I'm going to fire you." The employee could bring an action for employment discrimination on the basis of religion and say, "I was not given a religious accommodation. You should have allowed me." you know, to work there and, you know, and work around that issue somehow. Then that becomes a fact, a factual determination in that. But if you don't mind, I'm, I'm going to steer us back to 303 Creative in the yeah, time yeah, we have left, because this is so crucial. Every state has got these anti-discrimination laws. And if you're in certain cities, all the major cities, they've got them and they even pile them on more intensely. So if you live in Texas, there might not be a state law that that includes uh, gender identity, but you'll find that in you know the city of Austin or the city of Houston or something like that. So a lot of people come under these. So what does this mean? If you are now, uh, if you are in a state, city, town, what you know, or if, even if it's a federal, if you're going to come under an anti-discrimination law and you have some kind of job that involves artistry or expression, or you create things, or you're creating messages. If the state or city, whatever, fill in the blank, ever says to you, Jim, if you do that, if you take that position or you won't serve that group, you won't create that message, you violated the law, we're coming after you. All those arguments are blown away. This is a great decision. It's a great decision. It says, no, when your artistry and your speech is involved, you have those protections. The federal government, the state of Colorado, the city of Los Angeles, you name it, cannot compel you to create content that involves your expression, your artistry, your using your talents to create a message that you disagree with. And this is the important thing, and this is in a decision. And we win these cases by analogy. The Supreme Court took pains to say this, that, look, correctly understood, everybody should be real glad about this decision because they gave examples. And I'll, I'll, I, rather than fumble through the decision, the Supreme Court said something like, look, you could say to the, the, the Muslim artist, you've got to create a pro-Zionist message. You could say to the gay, uh, you know, baker, you've got to bake a cake celebrating an event for the Westboro Baptist Church on why marriage is one man and one woman. You know, that this protects everybody. And the interesting thing was Colorado, this is where they really ran aground here. When we were in the litigation, we asked them a series of hypotheticals. Can you compel a Jewish 
you know, artist to create something for a, a neo-Nazi group? No. Can you force an African-American artist to create something for the KKK? No. Every answer was no, 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 until you got to the Christian and an LGBTQ subject, yes, you must do it. So it was not evenly applied. The Supreme Court has said, look, this is basic. This protects everybody. I would just make maybe a few other very quick points, and I don't want to run afoul of the time. One is an important thing to understand in the case is the stipulations. What are stipulations? Okay, it's kind of like what the word sounds like. The two parties to a lawsuit get together and they agree on certain things. Why? Well, a court doesn't want to be arguing and deciding every detail. The court says, you two get together. Tell me what you agree upon. What's the agreed facts? And then let's see what we don't agree on and we'll just focus on that. And this is common sense. If you and I were having an argument or a debate about something, Jim, pick any topic, a sports debate, right? Um, we would start by saying, okay, what do we agree on? Who's the better team? Okay, here's what we agree on. Both teams played this number of games. They had this number of players. They had this team batting average or statistic. They have this. Okay, once we agree on all the things, then we get to the debate with what we've agreed upon. The stipulations were key here. And the majority decision said, said of the dissent, we're perplexed by what you're saying. Look at the stipulations. The, the dissent is basically saying, kind of paraphrasing, you don't like gay people, you don't want to serve them. We're going back to the dark ages. The majority said, no, look at the stipulations. This artist serves everybody. She just does not create all messages. This is all agreed on by both parties in the lower court and the intermediate appeals court, that this is her speech, that she's creative, she's using artistry, she serves everybody, but she does not want to create all messages. All given, nothing in question, everybody agrees to it. And the majority decision said, there it is. She's not telling people I won't serve you because you're gay or transgender or your age. It's a message that she does not want to create you lose. In the eyes of the dissent, the dissent is very outcome-oriented. You have, a, you have a, a same-sex couple getting less than they want. They should get everything they want. Your beliefs are getting in the way. We can't have that. That's the great divide in this case. But in a 6-3 decision, the court went on the side of Christians. And here's why I think this is so important. And I want to offer this as a way for listeners to think this through. I have never met, not that I can recall, who say, I have a general business. I have a hardware store. I don't want to sell hammers and nails to sinners. Okay, you'd be out of business right away, right? I've never met somebody who says, I'm not going to sell a hammer and nails to someone because they're gay. Or I don't know anybody who thinks that way. Um, every business I know, you want everybody to buy your products. When I was in private practice, I felt that way. I had clients, so they stood for things I didn't agree with, but I served them as their attorney, but they know I had convictions about certain things. There were certain cases I would not take when I was in private practice. Now, that I think accurately embraces the Christian position. And Jen, you've been spectacular at this. You're a bridge builder. You get to know people. You don't reject them as a person, but there are beliefs that you cannot compromise. 
So does this mean, oh, now you've opened the door, gay people won't get served? Of course not. The court even said that. This is not, this is not just selling routine goods. And this to me is exactly where Christians are. We love everybody. We serve. And Apostle Paul said, if you didn't want to interact with sinners, you'd have to leave this world, you know. So uh, that's open. But on the other hand, there are essentials of our faith that dictate how we act, what we can do. The three Hebrew children before Nebuchadnezzar, we cannot bow down and worship your image. You know, Peter and John before the Sanhedrin. As for us, we've got to obey God. You can't tell us not to preach in this name. There were times we have to speak and do what God in our conscience commands us to do. And I'm not here to tell you what your conscience says. That's between you and God. I'm here to fight for you to have the right to live out your conscience before God as best you understand it. And that's what's really important here. So this does not open the door to any of those horribles. Um, and one last point, if I may. Do we have time for that? Yes. Uh -huh. So the other argument you're going to hear, it's a fake argument. Oh, now this opens the door for the white supremacist you know, religionist who says, well, no, I'm not going to serve blacks because, you know, or Asians because that's my religious view. False, false, false. This does not impact race. Race is a whole different analysis. And here is why. This is about creating a message. You, the court has said many times, look, you cannot say, oh, I'm not going to serve people of this race unless it's it's about those people. I don't like those people. And that's different than a message. And, and so it necessarily goes to the class of who those people are. And the other thing I would say is, is, is look, an essential to me understanding of Christian faith is that we have one race, a human race. God created all of us in his image, in his likeness, right? And, uh, and for that reason, Jim, you've, I've heard you teach on this. Who was it in England who led the fight to abolish slavery? William Wilberforce. And he did it based on his? Christian condition. Christian morality. Who led the fight to end, uh, you know, Jim Crow laws in this country? Well, Christians. Yeah. Dr. Martin Luther King used his Christian theology, left from the Birmingham jail. Will you find people who have misunderstood? Of course. In my view, that tends to be more how they were raised culturally rather than a, a faithful application of Christian truth, which tells us it's neither, you know, Jew nor Greek. You know, God obliterates those kinds of distinctions. So real Christian faith, yes, it's gone off the rails, self-corrects. So you're not going to find that kind of thing here. The real focus is going to be when the world comes at us and says, here's the new politically correct message. We are demanding that you affirm it and bow to it now. This is a tool for Christians to say, or any people of any faith, I will not bow to that. I will not create a message or do an act that violates my conscience before God. Will there be some difficult line drawing? Yes, the Supreme Court said that in the case. It's the question of what's really artistry and opinion versus just services is not always clear. I can think of hypotheticals that'll be challenging. Um, you know, I create unique dresses. Uh, I'm a hairstylist. 
Um, I'm a cook, but I'm known for my presentations. People come to my restaurant because of the way I create my food. I use artistry. How will those cases go? We're going to find out. It's going to be a case-by-case basis. How much of a message is it and all that? But the, the important takeaway is when, it's a, when your religious beliefs collide with an anti-discrimination law and you say, I cannot celebrate a certain event, you know, I, I cannot do that. You then have, the, you know, you have that freedom. If I, if I own a store and my belief is on the 4th of July, I want to put out an American flag or my belief is in June, I want to hang out a rainbow flag. The government cannot come to me in either case and say, we don't like that message, take it down. That's what this case does. That's the best explanation I can give of it. Well, I so appreciate your time and, and your thoroughness in understanding this and explaining to it, Joe. You are a, a blessing to the body of Christ. I've had the privilege of working with you many, many times. And each time you're, you're, uh, you, you, take, you take the complex and make it simple, as simple as can be. Uh, many people take the simple and make it complex. <laughs> you take it the right way. So thank you, my brother. I pray the blessing of the Lord upon you. And thank you for this gracious time you've given to us. And if I may, if again, if anybody came in late and they missed this, if anybody has questions about this, you're a church or a ministry, I help anybody who reaches out to me. I, I do it pro bono. That's the ministry the Lord's given me now. You can reach me at Franco, J-I-N like Nancy, F-R-A-N-C-O at Highlands Church, H-I-G-H-L-A-N-D-S, church.org. And I'm happy to help you with some of these questions. That is an unbelievably gracious offer. Thank you, my friend, Joe and Franco. Bless Thanks, you. Jim. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please read the show notes for additional details if you would like a copy of the book or resources mentioned. Remember that WellVersed is a 501c3 tax-deductible nonprofit organization. We rely on your support and partnership. Don't forget to hit subscribe to keep up to date with our latest episodes. Leave us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. Thank you for listening to the WellVersed podcast. For more information, please go to www.wellversedworld.org.